Let's take our Bibles this morning for our time of study on this communion day and open them to the last chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. This day has been long in coming. We have been through much together as we have learned about the future history of the world in which we live. There has been much that we have talked about in reference to the judgments to come during the tribulation, the reality of the church being taken away prior to Christ's coming, and then, of course, the millennial kingdom after the tribulation. And we have seen the glories to come. We have seen all of those beautiful realities for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And now we come to the final message from the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise that God had made way back in Genesis chapter 3, whereby when Adam and Eve had sinned, God promised that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. Even though he would bruise the heel of the one who would come, in the end, the one who would come would crush the, the serpent's head. One would come who would once and for all and for all time take upon himself the penalty of sin and the penalty of death and then rise again unto life. That one has come. And all that was promised by God has been accomplished in Him. Nothing has been missed. He came as a Savior. He came, the Gospels tell us, to seek and to save that which was lost. I love that because He came on a divine rescue mission. He came as God. He came from God. And He came on a divine rescue mission And for those who have believed the message of God concerning His Son, you have been rescued from the fires of hell itself. You have been snatched, if you will, uh, from the inevitable. You, You have been rescued from the power of death. You have been rescued unto new life, the Bible says. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is coming again. He has come and he has gone away and yet he is coming again. And this time, not as a savior. He's not going to come again as savior. He's going to come again, but he is going to come as judge. And he will render to every man according to his deeds. So as assuredly as the promise was that was made in Genesis chapter 3 and all that God had promised within that has been accomplished to its full extent, so too in Revelation chapter 22 we hear these words of Christ for a third time, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. It is a promise to those who believe, and it is a warning to those who do not yet believe. 
It is a promise to us who have faith in Jesus Christ that Christ is coming quickly. Oh, what a wonderful promise that is that what we endure and what this world is like now will not be forever. Yes, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. And yet, at the same time, it is a warning. It is a warning to those who yet do not believe that, yes, He is coming, and He is coming quickly, and it will not delay, and it will happen, and all that He has said to this point will take place, and you, until you believe, are stacking up upon yourself, as John tells us, the wrath of God, wrath upon wrath upon wrath. Jesus says in verse 7, of Revelation chapter 22, Behold, I am coming quickly. And there is a, a, a blessing upon those who believe. There is a human responsibility for all who have heard these words to heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus says again in verse 12, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am coming, it is as assured as it, as it was when, when God promised in the garden to send one who would come and, and die for the sins of men, and as assuredly as that I am coming quickly, and I will render to every man their deserved reward. And of course, Jesus then says again in verse 20, Yes, I am coming quickly. And here, here there is a spiritual responsibility to receive these truths as they are. Now listen to our text this morning as you follow along, beginning in verse 18, where we're in these final, last, just sentences in this entire book. And beginning in verse 18, it says this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. As I was reading through this this week and thinking about all that is here in this text, it became apparent to me once again that we live a life of consequences. We live a life of consequences. Many of you who know me may not know this about me in my childhood, but when I was young, I was very fearful of the police. Still am in some ways. I was fearful of the consequences of breaking the law and what that meant, what that entailed knowing that there were consequences for actions uh, uh, that if you broke the law, those, those 
would come upon you, that very thought, that very idea kept my life hemmed in in a certain kind of moralistic way, in a, in a good way really, but, but although I wasn't saved, the, the fear of the, the law, the fear of the, the sword, the fear of, of the consequences that came with breaking the law were, were something that was used to hem my life in. My father, in fact, uh, would teach my brothers and I about consequences when we grew. We knew that if my dad said something and we did not do it, there would be consequences. And, of course, that principle was lived out in my own home with my own children. My father used to remind us often of this very issue. If you fail to plan, this is probably why I plan so much. If you fail to plan, then you better plan to fail. If you fail to plan... You better plan to fail. It was a principle about consequences. About preemptively thinking about that in life. With poor planning came poor outcomes. And God has shown this principle throughout the Scriptures. In fact, just by way of reminder, we don't have to turn there. We know the story. Remember in Genesis, Adam and Eve... We're told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did so, there were certain consequences that would come. And that consequence was just this. You will surely die. They disobeyed, of course. We understand that. We're all part of that. And the consequences came upon them and all who followed after them. We are a living example of breaking the law of God and having the consequence of God fall upon us. Paul said it this way, for the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. And so for our lives, it is just that, lives of continual consequences. And here in Revelation chapter 22, we find the same truth. We find this truth concerning consequences. What what we do with these words has consequences for all eternity. It isn't just, hey, I I don't think that's accurate. It isn't just, I'm going to think differently about that. No, what we do with these words in our very life will have consequences concerning our very eternity. In other words, the words of this very book, And we're not just talking about the 22 chapters as we have it in the book of Revelation. We're talking about Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 verse 21 and everything in between. What we do with the words of this book, both in its content and in its completeness, have consequences and according to the words here, they are not to be tampered with in any way that is a simple and yet a profound principle that when all is said and done god says do not mess with my book and you may notice by the way that to tamper with this book either in its content or its completeness is to invite upon yourself the personal judgment of god Notice in verse 18, 
Second part of the verse says, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away, verse 19, from the words of the book of this prophecy, shall God shall take away his part from the tree of life, the holy city, which are written in this book. So you ask the question, what is really being said here? What is, what is God saying? What does this tampering look like in reality? How do we know when we're tampering with the Word of God? And the first thing that we can say is that we already know uh, certain things to be true about Scripture and about God Himself. So in one sense, we, we know some things that he, he cannot be saying here. And we know that God here isn't talking about, when he talks about tampering with this, he's not talking about some kind of error by way of copyists in ancient times. In other words, to tamper with this is to have some copyist in ancient times who was copying the text down so that they could have uh, copies down through the ages, made some mistakes, and thereby tampered with the Word of God. That's not what it means. Why? Because in an amazing way, Over the centuries, God has preserved His accurate Word down through the ages for us so that what you hold in your very lap this morning is the very accurate Word of God without error. God, in His sovereignty and by His very providential planning, has preserved His Word even though you cannot this day produce one shred of original copies of His Word. But we have copies down through the ages and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of of pieces of fragments and things so that when they are brought together, it is the exact accurate Word of God that we found in the originals. And any... Someone might come and say, well, there's a mistake here that they found years ago and they find this little thing. All Every single time any of that kind of stuff happens, it's only found in some minuscule extent piece of stuff that deals with 0.1% of what is actually accurate, 0.1%, and none of it deals with the, the main doctrines of Scripture. It's always some minuscule little piece of a, of a number where someone put on a, a copyist because of the way things were written down on papyrus back then and, and having no vowels in the original Hebrew and the letters are all close together that someone looked at the line and added something by mistake. But it wasn't messing with the Word of God in order to make it say something that was inaccurate. God, in fact, would not be God if He could not get us His Word without error even though he used the instrumentality of men to do it. So he isn't talking about copy mistakes when it says don't tamper the word, don't add to it, don't take away. He's not talking about that. And secondly, he isn't speaking about just simple, straightforward disobedience to the word of God. He isn't talking about that because that's already been clearly stated throughout all of Scripture. There are consequences to disobedience to the Word of God. We understand those consequences. And the Scriptures as a whole, there are consequences for disregarding it. So disobedience to the truth already carries a penalty. And we also know that in this book, God unfolds the purposes of Christ, right? 
This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the uncovering of the, the wonder and, and some of the mystery and the reality of who Christ is in all of His full glory, especially as Him as God on the throne and the judge of all men. Christ, throughout all of Revelation, triumphs over His enemies. Even when, and especially when, He hung on the cross as He triumphed over the powers of darkness, Satan himself. And Satan himself would make great attempts to keep men from this book. Listen, Satan doesn't want you in the Scriptures. He doesn't want you knowing the God you say you love. He doesn't want you in this book. And if that fails, then what better way than to offer up to people the contents of this book by adding to it or by subtracting from it so that the truth about this book is confused or it's invalidated in in the minds of men. What better way? Satan, the prince of the power of the air, wants no one to know Christ. And so tampering with the content of this book according to Revelation 22, can be done in either of two ways. And and I need to remind us that both of these ways are the outworking, okay? Think of it this way. They are the outworking of a heart that is settled on this. Okay? This isn't an act of disobedience. Oh, oh man, I made a mistake kind of idea against the Word of God. I need to retract that, repent of it. This is the outworking of a heart that is settled in this direction. In other words, these are not one-time instances. This is the outworking of a belief about it. This is the outworking of a a, a belief in the heart that shows itself in life. It shows itself in the outworking of life. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15. At the heart flows, and he lists all these kinds of things, fornication, murder, all these kinds of things. In other words, out of the heart flows life. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says the same thing. Guard your heart with all diligence. Uh, Be very careful about your heart. Why? Because out of it flows the wellspring of life. As one old farmer said one time, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. You got dirty water in the well, it's going to come up in the bucket. You fill yourself with the world, that's what's coming up in the bucket. You fill yourself with the Word of God, and that's coming up in the bucket. Out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life. So, so tampering with this book is a very serious thing. And it's, it's, what we'll see here is that it's the outflow of a, of a life that's, that, that has a belief in this. And the first way is by adding to the words of this book. Verse 18 By the way, this is Jesus Christ testifying these words. If you have a red letter Bible, (laughs) these words should be in red. These are Jesus talking here. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. This kind of prohibition has been given throughout all of scriptures. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2, God says this to the people of Israel, You shall not add to the word which I command you. 
It's not an old principle. This is a principle that's been around since the very beginning. Don't add to the word. What did Satan do in the garden with Adam and Eve? Has God really said this? He added to the word. He he took the word of God and and reconfigured it for Adam and Eve. And they they bought the lie. Those same words uh, that or in Deuteronomy chapter 4, or echoed again in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And then if you go to the end of Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, in verse 6, it says the very same thing. Don't add to the words of this book. And what do all those passages have in common? What do they all, all have that, that, that is, is equal? They all speak of the arrogance of the heart of man that would really see himself in a place where he could add to the errorless words of the holy God. That's really what's behind that. What's behind the prohibition and the command by God is this reality to be diligent to watch your heart because it's out of the arrogant heart that says, oh, that's not what God really means by what he's saying. Revelation chapter 22 reveals the reality of a person's heart so that God makes this declaration about their spiritual end. This is, this is the, the revealing of the heart of a, a person who doesn't believe the word of God. They add to the word of God and the declaration is made in verse 18 about their spiritual reality in the end. God brings upon them the plagues which are written in this book. You see, life has its consequences. And surely, good God, uh, you know, here's what we say, oh, God would never do that. God's just a loving God. And yet the life that arrogantly says that these words are incomplete or that says that these words are not the end of all things. The life that says, oh, surely God doesn't mean that, that whatever this book says, it will not happen in that way. That that God is just love. That surely God would not send the disobedient and unbelieving people to hell. Surely that's not what God is saying. Those who say such things are adding to the words of God. They're adding the things of their own heart, their own humanness, their own disbelief to the words of God out of their own arrogance. And God says they will face the consequences. They will face the consequences of adding to them all the judgments that are spoken about in this book. You say, why? Why? Because a person who treats the Word of God in this way, as if it's incomplete, demonstrates that they're an unbeliever. Because believers take God at His Word. To believe God is to believe what He says concerning His Son and everything He says concerning His Son and the outflow of that in all of life. To add to that in any kind of way, to say that it's incomplete, that this isn't what God means by what he says in his word as we understand it through the proper 
grammatical, historical, literal interpretations of Scripture so that we can understand the mind of God, so we can understand not just what God says, but what God means by what He says. When we have that, to to not draw that and to receive it in as it is, as Paul said to the Thessalonian church, you receive the words from us, not as they were words of men, but as they are the words of God. To, To add to that in any kind of way, How can someone disregard the clear words of God and still say, I love God? To add to them is to add to them out of your own arrogance demonstrates the heart of an unbeliever. And so John, at the end of this, gives a severe warning to you. If that is your heart, you sit that place right now, then you sit under this reality personal judgment upon your life. So to to tamper with these words is to add to them in a prideful arrogance, John says. Secondly, he gives another, another way of tampering. Another way of tampering. I don't think we need to belabor that point that we just said more than we already have. But there is a second way, and that's to subtract from these words. To add to them or to subtract if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. Uh, to take away, that means to remove. Uh, to remove completely. To remove the parts that are uh, unsuitable to the mind of men. To to. Strip away, if you will, to remove those words that are inexplicable or unpalatable to the, to the mind and the heart of men. To remove those words that are uh, unacceptable because uh, they're difficult to understand. They're difficult to explain. I was thinking about this this morning as I was sitting briefly in, in adult Sunday school and, and uh, there teaching in Genesis and the whole process of Genesis, talking about evolution and the reality of, of this idea in Christendom that you can meld those two things together so that you have an evolutionary creationism or a, or a creational evolutionist as if those two are compatible in some kind of weird way. And all that that is doing is this very reality. It is saying that what God has said in Genesis must not have happened in that way because it's inexplicable. It's, it's hard for us to understand it i can't explain it in the terms that people will really understand it and instead of taking god at his word we try to meld all that together and all we're doing is adding and subtracting the word of god doctrines of election people don't like to hear that they don't want to listen to it they want to say oh the bible doesn't talk about that and yet you open the scriptures and you read it clearly and you understand it in any language that it came in and even the english language that we have it in and it means the same thing god chooses you human responsibility the doctrine of the holy spirit and the bizarre ways that people claim that the holy spirit works in the mind and hearts of people to add to the scriptures a some kind of baptismal regeneration as if the waters of baptism somehow save you. 
to infuse grace to you through some kind of foolish sacraments and works of men that seemingly bring upon you enough righteousness that God might accept you for a time. And if that's not good enough, then the friends who are still here on this earth can pay enough money and pray enough to get you out of that place that you might get into the glories of heaven with your real God who you call Mary. All of those show the arrogance of the human heart. But to subtract from the word of God because it is unacceptable to your mind is the height of human arrogant unbelief. John says the consequence is just as severe. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life from the holy city which are written in this book. You see, you do the addition and God will add to you. You do the subtraction and God will subtract from you. We could say it in our own words this way. Those who think that they can somehow in some kind of way even in their own foolishness alter the word of God have no place in the glories of heaven. Those who in some kind of way think they can alter the words of God by their own foolish ignorance and arrogance have no place in the glories of heaven. That's the blatant disregard for the truth. And the blatant disregard for the truth only flows out of a heart of unbelief. And that heart of unbelief carries its own consequence. They have no part in the glories to come. Now, when you read this, you go, well, now, wait a minute. Sure sounds like somebody could be losing something they have. Don't think that. Don't think that as you sit here today and you hear these words as we've read them, that they seemingly indicate for us that somehow a person can lose their salvation. To believe that is to believe contrary to the entire scriptures. No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. No one can snatch the ones out of my hand. The Father gave them to me, and he who gave them to me is a greater power than anybody. So no one can snatch them out of my hand. Listen, you don't get yourself into the hand of Christ, and you can't get yourself out of the hand of Christ. To believe... That you can lose your salvation is to believe or it is to subtract from the word of God. Because the right of the tree of life is the right to those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb. Remember last time we were together, blessed, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. That's, that's just a blessing on those who believe, blessing on those who are unified with Christ. We have all we have in Christ. That's why I read Ephesians 2 this morning, because I wanted to remind us of that reality, that we have everything we need in Christ. We have an actual union with Christ. We have a vital union with Christ. We have a, a living union with Christ. Everything we are is because of Christ. We're unified with Christ. 
And to be unified with Christ is to have full access to all of these things that we have in the glories of heaven. So those who have no part in this blessing are unbelievers. They're not believers who can lose something because you cannot lose once you're in Christ. So these are unbelievers. They have no access to these things. And their treatment of the Word of God shows the very character of their heart. This is why I said at the beginning, this is a settled condition of the heart. This is the outworking of a heart. If anyone adds to it, and that's their life, it's, it's, it's this reality of them to be an unbeliever. And because they're an unbeliever, all the wrath of God is upon them. The plagues of this book and anything else that God would have to bring upon their life. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, the outworking of that in the life is the life of an unbeliever. And they have no access to the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. They never have access. God's taken that away from them because they don't believe. They're not saved. The door was open to them. The gospel went out. But now the door's closed. They cannot get in. They have chosen to reject God and reject His word about His Son. You see, the blessings of this book are only for believers. The blessings of the book of Revelation and the blessings of all 65 other books in the scriptures are blessings for the believer. Someone says to me sometimes, how do I counsel my unbelieving friend in this marital issue from scripture? I say, you want to know how to counsel your unsaved friend who's going through marriage issues from the scriptures? Here's how you counsel them. Give them the gospel. Why? Because they can't apply any truth from the Scriptures in their life without the Gospel. Certainly they can do some moralistic techniques that might fix some things on a surface level, but that doesn't mean anything. They can have the greatest life in the world here on earth and still go to hell. They need the Gospel. You say, well, how do I counsel my Christian friend who's going through issues from the Scriptures? You you confront their sin with the truth and help them look at their life in reference to the gospel. Because they're not living according to the gospel in their life. And that's why they're living in sin. And that's what they need to confess and go before God and now walk in obedience. So it's the same for both sides. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ and walk by faith to the unbeliever. And to the sinning Christian, repent and walk in obedience to Christ. It's the same thing. This is a a book of blessings for the believer. And all it says to the unbeliever is you better repent and believe or the wrath of God remains upon you. That's what it says. True believers neither add nor subtract from the word of God. Those who add or subtract from the word of God show their lives as those who... who, uh, Refuse to believe in what God has said concerning His Son. And therefore, the consequences they will receive are everything this book says. All the plagues that are written in this book. But to those who believe in all that God has said concerning His Son, they will know all the blessings of the glories of heaven. You say, how do you know that to be true? How do you know that? 
because this is the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. As true as the promise was in Genesis chapter 3, and it all happened, Jesus Christ, the one through whom and by whom and for whom everything was created because he was there creating all things, is the same one who says, yes, I am coming quickly, and yes, I am the one testifying to you concerning these things. Somebody says, I don't believe it. Why should I believe it? You know what I say to them? Because God said it. And to disagree with God is just shows your arrogance against him. God said it. You must believe it. Christ has told us of these things, and they are guaranteed on the basis of his certain return. What God promised, as I said, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, took place in the coming of Christ to give his life. Christ came, he gave his life for sinful men, all who would ever believe, and so too his second coming is guaranteed. Coming as a judge. And John prays that the grace of God be upon all. Grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. I hope you're not sitting here this morning thinking, boy, it's a good thing God saved me. He needed somebody like me on his team. The Bible says, no, you were saved by grace. You didn't deserve it. The beauty is all of us can have it. We don't deserve it, but we can have it. But it only comes through Christ. Only comes through a sacrificial death on the cross. Is it any wonder that that at the end of this very chapter it says, Amen, come Lord Jesus? <laughs> the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God, and it ends with, Amen, come Lord Jesus. We're going to celebrate in just a moment communion. The communion table is all about grace. All about grace. It was interesting. When I was a kid, we used to pray. My father got saved when I was five years old. And we used to pray at the dinner table. Somebody would say, will someone ask, will someone say grace? It's an interesting way to say it. Someone say grace. If we thought about that, will someone ask for God's undeserved favor upon us in this meal? (laughs) That's really what we're saying. Which is an acknowledgement that we need it. This is a picture of grace. The grace that Christ would come. uh, The grace that Christ would, would substitute himself for sinners like us. The the grace that Christ would go and and have himself by the hands of wicked men nailed to a cross so that he might die. The grace of the offer of salvation by grace. What a gift. What a gift. 
John says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And then he ends with that familiar term, amen. That, that term just simply means, let it be done. It's like the, the massive exclamation point of the writers and when we pray. It's the stamp to say, God, now let this be done. May the grace of Jesus Christ be with all. Please let that be done. For if it is not done, then we have said with our lives that God's word's not enough. See, if we don't know Christ by faith, then we're like every other unbeliever. We're still rejecting God. And in rejecting God, we're showing our life of unbelief through adding and subtracting from the word of God. Why? Because we haven't taken God his word. We said, what you're saying is not what you mean. And what you mean, I don't think is enough. And so if we sit here today with that heart of arrogance in attitude, then all the wrath of God remains on us. But if we're here by faith in Christ, then we'll turn our backs on all that the world has to offer. We'll pursue Christ with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength. And if that's our heart, we we take God at His word, we believe what He said, and this table and the elements on this table, which are just that, pieces of bread and, and, and juice, represent the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross for you who believe. And so we, we revel in those very final words. May the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. May we stand in grace. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts to worship you around the table, remembering the great sacrifice you made on our behalf, we are reminded this morning of the severity of rejection. Each one of us here who knows Christ were once rejectors of you. And yet, because of your great mercy, the extent of that mercy that you showed us in Christ and by which you drew us to yourself, we now rest in because of faith in your Son. Protected from the wrath that you would bring. But Lord, we know We know it took a while for you to woo us to yourself. It's confounding to us, really, why your love comes that way. We know there are here those who still reject you. The words they hear this morning are just that, words. More words of another religious person. Lord, help them to not reject. Cause them by your Spirit to set aside all those things in their mind that they might, that are used by by the evil one 
that caused them to doubt. May their life be not a reflection of adding or subtracting from your word, but taking it wholeheartedly in their own heart to believe it. For by grace we've been saved through faith. Not a work of ourselves, but a gift of you. Lord, we thank you for the time we've spent in this final book of your book. We thank you for all that we've learned. The things even now we still have a hard time comprehending, Lord, but we trust that you are true. We know them to be true because you've told us. Help us to hold to those things because you're our God. We never want to doubt you. Thank you for the love we find in Jesus Christ and the edification that we have in the body of Christ through one another. Bless our time now as we worship you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.